just looks like us. We are beginning in chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7. The nature of the body and marriages. Now, what would you think would be the next logical step for Paul and his message to the Corinthians? Uh, would marriage be the next logical step? Well, that's what the Holy Spirit chose, and so it's most logical, isn't it? Uh, we may not understand why it sits in the text in this place, but it does, in the order that Paul wrote, because there's 17 problems he's going to deal with, and here's this one that pops up in the middle of the book. Uh, so, uh, they were evidently not uh, disciplined in regard to their marriages, and they had some questions about it uh, that they wrote Paul. So their problem, I'm thinking, was uh, a lack of discipline. Most of the 17 things wrong with them are based on a lack of discipline. Uh, that's why uh, they become disciplined, uh, because 17 things are going to change after they read Paul's letter and work on it. Now chapter 5 and 6 seems to be Paul's reply uh, to some things that has been reported to him. See verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, it's actually been reported to me. And so uh, it seems to be that somebody had come to him with news about the fact that they're tolerating this fellow in chapter 5 that's living with his father's wife. And they're talking... Uh, they're taking themselves to court, and they're not uh, clear on the biblical teaching about the body. The Greek philosophers uh, were evidently still troubling them after they came to Christ about the relationships of the body. Now, false doctrine has no end to it. It involves and invades every aspect of the body, the Christian the Christian's understanding of the body of Christ. So now in chapter 7, he starts out a different way. He said, now about the matters that you wrote about. And so they wrote him a letter, and in that letter, he's beginning to answer some of their inquiries about marriage. And <clears throat> we cannot ignore uh, the philosophical background that maybe gave rise to some of these problems in the church at Corinth. So first of all, he had heard some things, and secondly, uh, they had written about some things that he now wants to talk about. Uh, first of those things was marriage, and we're going to look at the way the local body was to deal with the uh, uh, situation of marriage or not marrying. Now they had this uh, Greek philosophy there that uh, 
spoke out of both sides of their mouth in terms of marriage. And uh, that's probably why they was writing to Paul. Now the same Greek philosophies that would give them trouble on one side, uh, that uh, Tyrian side about the body might affect them from the Stoic side in regards to not marrying. <coughs> Uh, the unholiness of the body. In one case, the body is unholy, and therefore do with it whatsoever you will. On the other hand, the body is unholy, therefore you must demand all that it wants. Uh, that's the two reactions that are needed to, uh, that are made to the ungodly heresy that the body is unholy and that the body is an earthly, natural, uh, sensuous, physical creation and not the creation of God. Now that may have been the background that gave rise to this teaching. I don't know. But we do know that they had that type of influence amongst them. Uh, but there are six categories that the, he discusses uh, in this chapter. First of all, sexual intimacies uh, in general. And then he talks uh, to the unmarried and the widows. And then in verse 10 and 11 uh, is about Christian married to Christians. And 12 through 16 is about Christians married to non-Christians. And 17 through 24 is a long discussion about the call of God. He's not talking about the call to be married. He's talking about the call of God. But he relates marriage to our call. Now he's not talking about the call of salvation. That's the only biblical call there is. And so he's talking about how that would relate uh, or how their call would relate to that. And then he talks about virgins and widows, which is different than the unmarried and the widows. Now, when we get through studying this, we we'll go back, uh, we we'll go back through uh, and look at all the different groups that he talked to and what he said to them in brief. <clears throat> but right now, we're going to plow through the text the best we can and and. Uh, then we'll come back and summarize. Uh, I believe that you have here in chapter 7 a local congregation's marriage manual. Uh, there's not a single situation that can exist spiritually, scripturally, that is not handled here in this chapter 7. <coughs> He talks about virgins that never married. He 
talks about the unmarried. That's the ones once married who are presently not married without death, without death separation. And then he talks about the widows that the once married that are now unmarried because of death. He talks about Christians and Christians married to non-Christians. Now there's no other possibilities within the body. He discusses every single legitimate possibility in the body. Even divorce in verse 28. And so he talks about every single possibility that can exist in the local church. So here's what Jesus taught him. Now remember when Jesus got ready to leave the earth, John 14, 15, and 16, he discussed with his apostles the spirit that would guide them into all the truth. Now we've mentioned this before, but it's imperative here in this text particularly that it's evident that they didn't have, Jesus did not give them all the truth. Uh, in John 16, 12, you remember Jesus told the apostles, those apostles, I have yet many things to tell you, but you're not able to receive it. Now, when the Spirit comes, he said, he will tell you of what I wanted to tell you and didn't. He will guide you into all the truth. That was Jesus' statement to the apostles because he didn't tell them all the truth. What he told them was true. Everything he said was true. But he didn't tell them all the truth. Uh, because you got people in the church who read 1 Corinthians 7 and they want to run back and find some place where the Lord said this. Well, he didn't. And Paul will make mention of that. So be prepared for that. So in this context, Jesus told these fellas, I have not... Uh, told you fellas everything about anything. Uh, now everything Jesus told them was true, but he did not tell them all the truth. And so he assumes them, then uh, there's more truth than you will later be told. That's the assumption that Jesus had. As a spirit, when he comes, he'll tell you all, he'll bring to your to you all truth but I haven't told you all truth you're not able to bear it and uh, that's what we have here in 1 Corinthians 7 as far as married relationships in the body is concerned uh, the waterfront is covered here the whole gamut and uh, in a part of it he will say, I want to remind you here of what Jesus said. And in another part of this chapter, he will say, now I want to tell you something Jesus didn't tell you. Because Jesus told the apostles, the Spirit will guide you into all the things that I'd like to tell you now. But you're not able to handle them right now. And it's not the appropriate time for you to deal with these things. So... Hang on, and the Spirit will guide you into all the truth. And so Paul's going to remind us of this uh, in this chapter. So, uh, so does Paul have a right to do that? Well, yeah, Jesus gave him that right in John 16. 
And so when Paul was guided into 1 Corinthians 7, he said in verse, uh, in chapter 14, verse 37, uh, it is a commandment of God. And so what Paul wrote was God's commandments. We're reading them here in chapter 7. Although it was sometime uh, something in addition to and different from what Jesus said. And we'll discuss that when we get to it. Didn't mean that Jesus misled us. Doesn't mean that Paul jumped into something that wasn't authorized. It just means that Jesus didn't comment on a lot of things. The apostles had the right to tell you things Jesus did not tell you. We need to acknowledge that. We need to recognize that. Uh, but they will be uh, there will be things that will be different from and so Jesus teaching is neither total nor uh, universal uh, now when he got through teaching it was cause he sent the spirit and, and also uh, uh, spoke to the apostles and so if you reject an apostle, who do you reject? Jesus. Well, you reject Jesus. John 13, verse 20 says, states that. Uh, now, these are the six points we're going to look at in chapter 7. Number 1. The first case, in verse 1, he talks about single people. He says, now concerning the things uh, that you wrote, whereof you wrote of, it's good for a man not to marry. Now there's a principle behind this, and that is that premarital sex is forbidden. This principle will be seen all through here. Premarital relationships are forbidden by God. Uh, but what he states is marriage is not necessary for some to live a, a fulfilled life. He said it's good for a man. The word good there means morally good. But he did not literally say it is good for a man not to marry. Uh, that is a good translation of what he said, but that's not what he said. What he literally said is it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And you have translators who, some translate it not to touch a woman, and others say not to marry. They both amen at the same thing. There's not a problem here. It's just a thing that needs to be recognized. Uh, not to touch a woman. That's his statement in the original language. I think the American Standard and even the New American Standard uses the word touch, uh, not to touch a woman. That's a literal translation. Uh, a better translation is this one. It is good for a man not to marry, but the best translation would be it's good for a man not to have sexual intercourse. That would be uh, the best uh, translation of that word because touch a woman that phrase in the Greek is very interesting it has to do with uh, 
with that. Now I'm not going to get into a discussion that uh, uh, discussion of that particularly because it's not necessary. But if you take if you take that statement, touch a woman, to an American standard concordance, you'll find out that what it's, it uh, always uh, meant from the very beginning of the Old Testament up until today. The word literally means not to have sexual relationships with. Uh, and since marriage is where that is normally occurs, the sexual relationships. Uh, that's what the NIV and some of the modern translation says. It is good for a man not to marry. That's what they say. Because there are occasions in the Old Testament where this phrase means exactly that. It's an extension of Exodus 20 and verse 14. And so that would be a good place to begin your study uh, of that thought. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Just uh, begin your study on that thought in Exodus 20, verse 14, because that's what it says. And use your center column reference in your Bible. Uh, I've read that the word originally meant the physical stimulation leading to sexual embrace. In other words, the definition of that statement that Paul used is speaking of what we call foreplay. Let me state that again in case you want to write it down. That word in the original Greek, that statement, uh, uh, not to touch a woman, uh, that declares a physical stimulation leading to sexual embrace. Now, I feel kind of constrained to go into this a little deeper than maybe we ought to or uh, than I want to, but when you allow your children, they're under your care, they're under your charge. You're responsible for them before God. When you allow them to go out with a, a boy or a girl and have fun at the ballpark or, or uh, at the carnival or just uptown to have a, a soda pop, how are they going to get there? Well, irregardless of whether they walk or whether they drive, you got a relationship there of touching. Now, <laughs> I don't know how to define this exactly, but the touching is that which stimulates uh, the end uh, of touching and kissing and hugging, and that is sexual intercourse. And that's what we call foreplay, isn't it? Uh, so the physical stimulation leads to sexual embrace. And, of course, your car is nothing but a, a bed on wheels in most instances. And we ought to be smart enough to recognize the dangers there. And so, if I've got a daughter or a son 
I'm not going to allow them or give my endorsement to them going away uh, unchaperoned, as it were, with another, uh, with their uh, boyfriend or girlfriend. Not going to allow that. Because then the touchy-feely stuff starts, and that is uh, the foreplay that leads up to the sexual act. You're putting them in grave danger. You don't let them go and, and to the prom dance at the school. You know, there's nothing wrong in the Bible about dancing. Moses danced, the children of Israel danced uh, in celebration of their deliverance from Egypt and different things. Nothing wrong with dancing. What makes dancing wrong is two people that are not married rubbing their bodies together. Now, I don't Try, I'm, not try, I'm trying not to be ugly about this, but Paul discussing this marriage issue, and we have to deal with the words that he uses. And that word, not to touch a woman, simply means physical stimulation that leads to sexual embrace. <clears throat> so don't do that, which leads to uh, it's good for a man not to do that, which leads to it's good for a man not to read certain novels or read certain books or watch certain movies. Uh, now, all that involved in Paul's statement here because they stimulate the wrong things. You know, we discussed that word that Jesus used when he spoke of uh, in Matthew 6, uh, whosoever looks upon a woman to lust after her, that word look doesn't mean just a glance. It means to concentrate and get right into envisioning uh, acts and performances and things like that. And we, we uh, summarized it this way. The fact that you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from making a nest up there. And that's what we're dealing with here. Uh, if you allow your girls and boys to go out and touchy-feely stuff, uh-uh, that's why we have so many illegitimate children. That's why we've got these problems we're paying for dearly through taxes and everything else. And it's amazing how stupid people are. Uh, they don't think about these things. They think, oh, it's wonderful. My daughter gets to go to the prom and dance. And Not my daughter. Not my daughter at all. Not my son. <clears throat> so I think this verse... Uh, Stands as a reproof for those who argue that marriage is necessary to lead a fulfilled life. It's not good for a man to be alone. That's true. The Bible teaches that. The Lord said that when he created man. It's not good that man be alone. Uh, but that's a general rule, uh, isn't it? So it, it's good for Paul to be alone. Was it good for him to be alone? He wasn't married. 
Was it good for Jesus to be alone? He wasn't married. Uh, so here we're dealing with a rule. It's not an absolute. It's it's a rule. Uh, but we need to remember that uh, they are general rules. Uh, they're not specific commands. It's not commanded of a man to marry. Uh, some men have no... Some men are eunuchs. Paul will talk about that. Uh, some are made eunuchs by nature. Some are made eunuchs by men. But not all men uh, have the drive for uh, marriage. And they don't have to get married. But there's nothing wrong if they do marry. <laughs> so nobody has ever been commanded to marry that I know of except Hosea. He's the only one in the Bible. And he was commanded to get married to a woman uh, knowing when he married her that she would become a whore. So in verse uh, 2 through 5, Paul talks about the sexual intimacies for couples. Couples need to be sexually in, uh, uh, intimate. That's what he's going to say in verse 2 through 5. Singles should not be sexually intimate. Couples should be. Must be sexually intimate. I think Paul makes four statements in these verses. Uh, in verse number two, he says, But since there is so much uh, immorality, uh, the original language says so many fornications. Since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And the husband uh, <clears throat> should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body uh, does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent. And for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your uh, lack of self-control. shows that there were uh, that we're not dealing with a dirty word when we're dealing with sex I think that's important to bring up uh, we've allowed the discussion about sex to either be Victorian or X rated and it's neither one we most of us were raised in a Victorian era uh, where he didn't talk about these kind of things. Well, Paul's talking about them. We're studying 1 Corinthians. We're going to have to go through this. 
It may embarrass us a little bit. It may be a little bit touchy. Uh, but we, but God seen fit that Paul write these things and leave a record for us to learn from. Uh, a friend of mine years ago was teaching a group of people uh, this text, 1 Corinthians 7, and he weighed about 300 pounds. And when he told them that sex isn't bad, uh, he said, you're looking at 260 pounds of living, vibrating sex. Well, that's not Victorian, I'll tell you for sure. Nothing wrong with what he said. Nothing wrong at all. Now, that's literally true. Uh, we've allowed the discussion either to be Victorian or X-rated. Maybe that's why we have so many problems. And both is wrong. Either Victorian or uh, Liberty. Either one of those is a bad discussion of sex. One leads to repression, and the other leads to too much expression. But here you have a legitimate statement in four things. Marriage is usually uh, necessary. Although it's good not to marry, marriage is usually necessary because of the many, verse 2, of the many fornications that are in the world, and because of the nature of man also, but in this text, because of the much immorality. They had it because of them pagans, uh, pagan religions that influenced Corinth. You remember again, they were sitting there where all the ships from east to west went through there and people from all nationalities and all kinds of weird ideas and beliefs converged there at Corinth. So God instituted marriage not simply for companionship but to give a legitimate means to express what fornication expresses illegitimately. That's what he said. That's a very, uh, very holy discussion. Now, I don't think verse 2, per se, hinders uh, polygamy. Because Solomon will say the same thing in Proverbs with 300 wives and 700 uh, porcupines. Uh, he will say each man should have his own wife. He meant porcupines, Dad? Yeah. He said porcupines. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got a dictionary. <laughs> uh, God did not condemn. Uh, now listen carefully to this because you may uh, throw a shoe over this. God did not condemn David for having more than one wife. You will not read it, I'll guarantee you. It's not in there. There is one passage, I think, that condemns polygamy, and the passage that says, no man can serve two masters. <laughs> but, <laughs> All right, I had to throw that in there. <laughs> But God did not condemn David for having more than one wife. 
he condemned David for taking another man's wife. That one was not his own. And he told David, I've given you the wives that you've got, and if you'll need any more, uh, I'll give them to you also. Now, I don't think polygamy is right. I'll make that, I want to make that clear. I don't believe in polygamy. Uh, so don't misunderstand me. But David was condemned because he took another man's wife. And so, uh, per se, this passage, verse 2, doesn't condemn polygamy. But there's other passages that does away with it. Uh, one would be, God made the two one flesh. That would do away with it. And things like that, it's spread throughout the the Bible declares uh, polygamy is wrong. Uh, the principles involved are much more important to mature people than a set of rules and regulations. So here, the should be uh, deal, I should have my own wife. My wife should have her own husband. And she and I both alike, uh, we like that arrangement. Everybody has had problems with that. And again, I'm thinking it was because of their pagan background. I think the fulfillment of sexual needs in the marriage relationship is what the, is, he's discussing. I think it says uh, only monogamy should be practiced. But that's not his per se statement. He's... Uh, that's a read-in statement, isn't it? And we use read-in statements, don't we? We do that when we uh, interpret a, a passage. I think we're, uh, uh, we're right, but I think he says uh, celibacy is not the norm for the majority. That's what he's saying. That's said there also. Okay, number two. Sexual needs of both must be fulfilled. And that's what he's going to say beginning in verse two. Once married, the sexual uh, needs of both partners must be fulfilled. Now, I have to bring this in. Uh, Women sometimes control their husbands with their sex. They'll cut off sex to wait to show him, to discipline him as they try to rule their own house. Well, that's ungodly and we know that, but I just want to make mention of that. They don't have that right. They don't have that right at all. It's not a macho situation where the guy gets his way and it's not an effeminate uh, giving in to the woman uh, where she gets her way. We both get our way. That's what Paul's talking about here, the man and the woman in the marriage. It is a win-win situation. The sexual needs of both must be fulfilled. That's what verse 3 says. The reason for that is in verse 4 where we pick up number three in our discussion. Each patron uh, 
her partner belongs to the other. They become one flesh. They belong to one another. Not just the body. The body is the thing being discussed here. It's the outward uh, seen thing, isn't it? But we are one flesh. Uh, is that speaking only of flesh? The word flesh, can you, uh, can you take it out and say we are one? One flesh again is the seen part. He's no more uh, there talking about the act of intercourse than he is here. He's simply saying you belong to each other. You exist to fulfill each other's needs. You are each other's help that is suited for the other. That's why Paul, before he says, wives be in subjection to your husbands as unto the Lord, what does he say? He says anybody knows the verse preceding that will recognize uh, particularly uh, preachers like to holler that one, uh, that women are to be in subjection to their own husbands. But what does verse 21 say of Ephesians 5? It says, subject yourselves to each other out of reverence for Christ. And so, it's an ungodly thing, not a macho thing, to rule over your wife. It's true that you're the husband, which in the Greek means house binder. You bind the house, the family together, the, the, the wife and the children. But you're not some kind of a macho lord that they've got to bow down and ask permission for everything they do. It just ain't taught in the Bible at all. There's a mutual uh, obligation and consent that goes on between a husband and a wife. Uh, so you get into a subjection contest and uh, you won't have any problems with verse 22. Uh, just see who can subject themselves the most, the husband to the wife or the wife to the husband. Uh, now I know that's not an American way, that's certainly not John Wayne's way, if you want to put it in that term, or this macho way, but that's the Bible's way of subjecting one to another, husband to wife and wife to a husband. In other words, surrender is the only way to win. Now that's contradictory to the way that America thinks and the world thinks, I'm, I'm assuming, but that's what the Bible teaches. Submission. Uh, surrender is the only way to win. Now that doesn't mean that the husband just lays down and lets the family walk on him. No, uh -uh. he's not a housebinder if he does that. He has, he is the head of the household. But it doesn't mean that he uses a wife as a doormat either. I remember talking to a young lady out there on the area and she was a welding inspector, believe it or not didn't have a well, didn't know what a well was supposed to look like. She had pictures. 
she'd look at the picture and then look at your welder to see if she could okay it. Well, she was a nuisance, but anyway, in the lunchroom, the discussion came up and, and everybody had a good laugh over it. She got mad. She said, when you read Genesis, it says that he took a rib out of man's side and made the woman. He didn't take her, he didn't take her out of his ass. And of course, it was pretty hard, but she was right. <laughs> and that's the way a lot of men do. They think they're, they have this macho concept. They rule a woman. They tell her how many times to chew that piece of food. And, you know, just ridiculous things. You need to get out of the woman's life and let her have a life, for crying out loud. What made you the, the guru, you know? You're taking something that is biblical, uh, being the head of the house, and you're taking it to extremes. So surrender is the only way to win. Subjection is the only way to lead. And he goes into that in verse 22 of Ephesians 5 and following. But the partners belong to each other is the point. Number four, and the fourth point uh, he makes in verse 5 is that any uh, abstinence must be temporary. Uh, partners may ob obtain, abstain, excuse me. Partners may abstain only temporarily, and that for prayer. Uh, that's not because you're mad at each other. You're, uh, you're trying to work something out. Work it out before sundown. Isn't that what the writer says? Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. That's Ephesians 4, verse 26. What happens when you let the sun go down on your wrath? You're laying there in bed thinking about it, aren't you? Is it festering? Is it like a, a boil that is gathering pus and swelling and causing pain and trouble on you and your mate? Yeah. <laughs> so don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Now it can go down if there's some misunderstanding is still there, but all wrath, if you believe God and trust Jesus, all wrath can end by sundown. So God's never told us to do anything we can't do. Now somebody or both need to surrender to do that. That's why point three comes uh, before point four. We belong to each other. And because we belong to each other, abstinence is only temporarily temporary. So marriage without sex is not only uh, unnatural, it is expressly forbidden. Did I read that right? Marriage without sex is not only unnatural, it is expressly forbidden. Except two people, uh, 
the only exception would be two people 90 years old getting married. <coughs> We're dealing with extraordinary circumstances then, aren't we? But ordinary marriage not only is uh, sex natural, it's commanded. Now marriage isn't commanded, but once you are one flesh, sexual relationships becomes obligatory. Obli you become obligated. What is the word? Obligatory? obligatory. I don't know. <clears throat> Any abstinence has to be mutually agreed on for spiritual reasons and that for a short period of time. So I think in Corinth uh, they're teaching that the body is unholy and therefore sexual relationships even in marriage is unholy uh, because of this influence of, of philosophy and uh, all that went on in, in, in that time. But anytime it's, uh, I'm studying it, I, I want it to apply to me and not them. Uh, he does teach here for whatever reason, he teaches it. I think that is the reason he teaches it, because there's people in Corinth saying, well, since the body is unholy, then sexual relationships is sinful. And maybe that was the taproots that gave rise to what we call the Victorian age, where you didn't talk about sex. Uh, it was looked upon as being ungodly, and yet God ordained it, and he commands it here. Therefore, they're causing, they're, uh, they're causing tension in the body of these false teachers and this false concept. And maybe that's why the guy in chapter 6 is going down and making himself one with the prostitutes is because... Uh, his needs are not being satisfied by his wife. Now because of the ungodly world out here, young ladies are taught many things by other young ladies. And them young ladies have mothers that have had a lifetime of, uh, a hard life of living ungodly and they teach those young girls, and it spreads through the school like a communicable disease. And it affects your children if you send them up there. But you know, uh, these young women, somehow they got the idea that they hold a trump card because of being a woman. That's not true. That's not true. And it shouldn't be looked that way. And so they use sex as a, a leverage, as a, well, that's far enough. Uh, and that's not right. If you love your husbands, you render, you offer your body. If he loves you, he offers his body. There is a mutual uh, obligation there. But for whatever reason he teaches it here, Paul teaches it, he teaches that it is wrong to keep oneself from one's partner sexually. 
Now, he, uh, now it didn't embarrass him to teach it, so it doesn't embarrass me to teach it. Uh, now, if you get to talking about some of the applications of that, well, I'll turn red and uh, excuse myself because some of the applications of that would become very red light district, and that would embarrass me, so we're not going to do that. But the statement that he makes is a holy, sanctified statement, and we've got to recognize it. My body does not belong to me alone. Now, does it belong to me? Yes, it's my body. Of course it does. Uh, I've had it as long as I can remember. <laughs> but it doesn't belong to me alone. That's the idea. It doesn't belong to me only. It also belongs to my wife and uh, and is to meet her needs, uh, whatever those needs are, uh, legitimate needs, sexually. Now what Paul is finally saying here is that I'm talking about permission, uh, premonition, and not commandment. Permission and not commandment. In other words, he says, I don't have a command to give from the Lord about marriage or not marrying. But he does have some commands if you are not married. Don't touch a woman. Uh, what is the command if you are married? Touch her regularly. Now Paul is quick to point out that neither the single life nor the married union is commanded. They're both permitted. Uh, he's within the realm of what he talks about in chapter 6 when he said all things are lawful. He's writing, he, he's uh, within that large realm of lawful. So he's quick to point out that he's dealing here as far as marriage or not marrying is permission, with permission. Read it with me. He says, this I say. I say this is a concession per, by permission, not as a commandment. Verse 7, I wish that all men were as I am, that is, single and not touching a woman. But each man has his own gift from God, and one has this gift, being unmarried, another has that gift of being married. And so each one needs to operate even physically within the realm of the giftedness that God has given him. And so, either way. And so verse 1 to 7 deals with sexual uh, intimacies, uh, not allowed for the singles, but commanded uh, uh, to command, but uh, at least uh, urged upon the married. Uh, 
I think it's commanded. He just used a, an imperative third person imperative and later on uh, we'll come back and look at the third person imperative that we've had so far because that's going to become a very important consideration when we get to verse 15. But he's dealing with imperatives. In verse 1, the first uh, imperative, uh, each man should have a third person imperative. Verse 3, the man should fulfill third person imperative. I mean, he's dealing with imperatives. Now, if you aren't uh, familiar with this word imperative uh, it's either command or permission allowance when you give a person an imperative you're not necessarily commanding them daddy can I have the car yes now that's permission not commandment but it's imperative uh, yes you're, you, you can that's imperative of permission. Imperative is either obligatory or permissive. The imperative mood in anybody's language has two forms, command and permission. And so you have to let the, the context determine which it is. Uh, but you can't condemn either what is commanded or allowed. If God commanded something, surely you can't condemn somebody for doing, doing that. And if God allows something, you can condemn somebody for doing You can't condemn anybody for doing that. If I give my child an allowance, I don't have much right to condemn what they do with it unless uh, it's immoral. I told them not to spend this right away or you don't get any more. And he didn't believe me, so he spent it right away. But the next week came came by and they couldn't spend it, uh, spend it right away because I gave them no more. Because with the allowance there were being trusted, they were being trusted to do what was right. With a command, uh, you're not necessarily being trusted. And so the permissive imperative is in a way more obligatory on a person to, uh, to check what he does and even a commandment. Now, <clears throat> I just said that to get us ready for the uh, use as you can read in the Greek text. And uh, and you read all those third-person imperatives, you'll find out some of them are the statement of command and some are the statement of imperative permission. And Paul's going to deal with this uh, command and permission, uh, which are opposite one another. He says, Now to the unmarried uh, and the widows, verse 8 and 9, uh, our time is up. And so before I go into that, there'd be a good stopping place. It's right there. And this is a first.
Yes. 12 1. Son, and I found that to be true. Uh, not that I needed to put it to the test, but it has always measured up to the test. Uh, what was it? I was fixing the light out and catch that rabbit, but I guess he got away. Coming back, I know that. 